I want to talk with you today about warnings. If you look in the scriptures, Old and New Testament, you see that God is a patient, gracious God, and that he redeems those who repent. Prior to the spring break, we looked at the book of Jonah and how God sent Jonah to warn the people of Nineveh of impending judgment. And when the people repented, God stayed his hand, which is exactly why Jonah didn't want to warn them. He wanted Nineveh destroyed. And God could have destroyed Nineveh, and eventually, more than 100 years later, he would destroy Nineveh because they got worse than they were before the days of Jonah. After their repentance, it was like, oh, well, I guess, I guess we are okay. And they went back to their old ways. But the fact is, it's not just the people of Nineveh. It was the people of Israel. It was the people of Judah. It was the people in Jesus' day. Jesus warned them that because they rejected the Messiah, Jerusalem would be destroyed, and it was in 70 AD, exactly as Jesus had said. If you look for just a moment in Revelation, Chapter 9, you have a description of horrible judgments coming on the earth, terrible consequences, massive death. In Revelation 9, beginning in verse 18, it says a third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes, having heads with which they inflict injury. The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood. Idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. What is wrong with those people? I mean, why in the world, when you see all this judgment and a third of humanity is killed. Why would there not be repentance? Most of us in this room yesterday went into the beautiful Great Smoky Mountains National Park. What a beautiful place! What a wonderful experience! Chick-fil-A food waiting for us at the picnic pavilion down at Metcalf Bottoms. 
But how many of you were delayed in getting there even though you left in plenty of time to get there? Let me see your hands if you were delayed. Oh, just about everybody who went. What in the world happened? Well, there was a tractor-trailer truck that had tried to go up into the park, apparently. Now, I'm going to ask Mr. Germain to be prepared to put a, a little picture on the screen because people who get stuck in campers and tractor trailers on that road almost always say the same thing. And that is, well, they need to put a sign back there. Mr. Germain, what is the first sign that people see when they come off? Oh, let's see what it says there. It says, no RVs, buses, trucks, trailers ahead, 1.5 miles. Eh, there it is. Gives you a mile and a half. You got other turns you can make. You got places you can turn around. Turn around. What is it called when you know you're going the wrong way and you turn around? That's called repentance. Repentance also called sanity, but repentance, okay? Now, what, what if you miss that sign? You know, maybe just glance down for a minute at his sandwich. Let's see if there's another sign. Oh, no RVs, buses, trucks, trailers ahead, one mile. So half a mile later, they've got another sign, and then just in case you're thinking, well, my GPS says I can go this way, don't follow GPS. Third sign. No RVs, buses, trucks, trailers ahead, half a mile. Don't follow GPS. What was this guy doing? Well, it's possible that like many people, he didn't even notice the warning signs. You understand? He just didn't notice. He thought like person after person after person. They ought to put a sign back there. They did. Three of them. You ignored them all. There is another category of driver, however. Some of you may identify with this. I know it said that, but I, I want to go there. See, they saw the sign, but they thought that the sign was there to inconvenience them. They thought they were being robbed of the opportunity to do something wonderful, explore our national parks. They thought that, yeah, they say don't do it, but I want to do it. And so even though they saw the warning, they decided to ignore the warning and keep on going because they felt that that didn't really apply to them. They shouldn't have to obey it. Kind of like some of us sometimes feel about the speed limit sign. You know? I mean, it's like, yeah, it wasn't that I didn't see the sign. It's just, I know my driving skills. <laughs> and I know the, the vehicle that I'm in. And I know the weather. And I know I can handle this. Yeah, it says... 45 miles an hour around that curve, but this baby hugs the road. 
Doesn't apply to me. Why is that sign there? Why, why was the first sign on Line Springs Road? Why was the second sign there? Why was the third sign there? Those signs were there to protect everybody, including the poor fellow who got stuck up the hill, not able to go further, and having to try and back down when he didn't even know how to drive forward, apparently. I mean, this is embarrassing. I wasn't angry at the guy yesterday. I felt badly for him. I appreciated the fact that we had Mr. Ben, who was willing to get out there and help the guy get down the hill. That was a charitable thing to do. And he didn't curse at the man once. But I'll tell you something. We look at a person like that stuck because they ignored the warnings and were determined to do what they wanted to do. And we say, what a bozo. Why? Well, because it turns out when we do the wrong thing, it doesn't just impact us. You understand? When we ignore warnings... We suffer, but so do others. All of us in this room have experienced painful, difficult things because of somebody else's mistake. Somebody else didn't follow the rules, didn't do what they should have done, and it didn't just hurt them it hurt us. So what do we do? Well, we blame them for all our problems. No. Because the problem is, we're like them. We do that too. How did all this start? Well, you know the story. There was this lovely couple the first time he saw her, he said, Whoa, man. That's a pun. <laughs> he called her woman. His name was Adam. Her name was Eve. Life was good. Mosquitoes didn't bite. They ran around with no clothes on. Nobody cared. There was no embarrassment. Just all kinds of food to eat. They were fruititarians. And it was good. They could eat the fruit from this tree, this tree, this tree, this tree, this tree, this tree, all these trees, it's all available to them. But there was this one tree in the middle of the garden that God had said, do not eat the fruit of that tree, for in the day that you eat thereof, you will surely die. Everything's going beautifully. It's all good. Not a lot of rules to follow. Just don't eat the fruit of that tree. It's good. Life is good. 
But there was a serpent in the garden. The tempter. Who said, did God really say, you can't eat the fruit of any of these trees? And Eve, not realizing that it's unwise to have a conversation with a snake, Eve said, oh, uh, no, God didn't say we can't eat the fruit of any of the trees. It's just this one tree that we're not supposed to eat from. In fact, Adam says we're not even supposed to touch it because if we do, we'll die. Serpent said, you will not die. God just knows that if you eat the fruit of that tree, you'll be like him. You'll know good and evil. And Eve looked at it, and she thought, well, it looks good. And it's been a few minutes since I ate something, so it's desirable for food. And it'll make me wise. I'd like to be wise. Okay. So she took a piece of whatever fruit that was. The Bible doesn't say it was an apple. She took a bite of the fruit and she didn't immediately fall on the ground dead. So she gave some to her husband who was there with her. That's what it says. What a chump. He should have told her, get away from that snake. there's, There's something shifty about him. Get away. But you see, the the snake looked really good. It was the most beautiful creature in the garden. Satan can look really good. Temptation can look really mm, tempting. And so Adam took what she offered, and he took a bite too. And then they noticed something they'd never been bothered by before. We don't have any clothes on. That's where that started. And so they made clothes for themselves out of plant leaves. Would have served them right if they'd gotten poison ivy. But they tried to cover themselves with leaves. And while they were trying out their new wardrobe, they heard the sound of God walking in the garden. And so they tried to hide. You see, spiritually, they were already dead. Everything had changed. They were made for fellowship with God, but now they're afraid of God. They're running the other way. That's what happens when we know we've done wrong. Shame, guilt, fear, and blame shifting. Because when they hid, of course, you can't really hide from God. 
God sees everything. God knows everything. There's not, there's not anything that God doesn't know. Before a word is on your tongue, he knows what you're going to say. Before you do. God knows how much longer all of us are going to live. He knows how many heartbeats I've got left. God knows everything. He knows how many hairs are on top of your head. God knows everything. But God, knowing not only where they were and what they'd done, but knowing that they needed, as we do, to confess to him, God said, where are you, Adam? God started asking questions, giving the man an opportunity to talk with him instead of the snake, giving the man the opportunity to tell the truth instead of lies. He said, where are you, Adam? Adam said, I uh, heard the sound of you in the garden. I was naked, so I hid myself. God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten the fruit of the tree that I told you not to eat from? And Adam said, yes, I have. No, he didn't say that. What did he say? The woman that you gave me, she, she gave me some of the fruit. In other words, hey, I may have eaten some of the fruit, but it's not my fault, really. It, it's, it's the woman who got me to do it. And, and you're the one who gave me the woman? This is, real. this is not on me. I've done the wrong thing, but it's not my fault. How many of you have ever admitted that you did the wrong thing but tried to insist that it wasn't your fault? That's, that's human nature. That's what we do. That's why a guy passes three signs and then says, well, they ought to put a sign up back there. Why is he saying that? Because, yeah, I know I, I'm in the wrong place, I did the wrong thing, but it's not my fault. I was just going by my GPS. The sign said, don't follow your GPS, twice. Well, but I'm used to following my GPS. You know what we're used to following? Our own desires. That internal compass. I'm blessed to be old enough to know the GPS is not always right. There are people who literally have driven their car into bodies of water because they were following the GPS instead of looking out front. Well, that's embarrassing. Yeah, it's a costly mistake. And the GPS company doesn't pay for it. And one of the reasons they don't have to pay for it is because in order for you to start using your GPS, you have to indicate that you have read a paragraph that says, don't rely on the GPS to the exclusion of paying attention to what's out there. If you think because the GPS says so, that seals it. You're mistaken. And that can be literally a deadly mistake. If you think 
that you can just follow your inner compass. Just, you know, that, that inner light that guides me. Satan often comes robed as an angel of light. Doesn't always look like a snake. Sometimes he looks like a religious figure. Sometimes he looks like a friend. But all of us have a sin nature that points us over and over in the wrong direction. And yet, we have a tendency to want to follow our own desires. And when we do, it does not turn out well. So, whether you're just not paying attention to the signs, or whether you see the signs and think, well, I don't have to obey that, you're making a big mistake. You're headed for disaster. And all of us are guilty of doing that sometimes. It turns out the warning was there to protect us. God is not out to get us. He's not looking for an opportunity to mess up your life. God has all power, and if he wanted to destroy us, we would already be destroyed. Do you understand? Even Adam and Eve, God could easily have made it so that when they tasted that fruit, they went... (coughs) (coughs) Fell on the ground dead. God could have done that. I have marveled at times at the fact God didn't kill me. I really have. Because I've looked back on something that I did and I've thought, thank you that I'm still here. Once it was for something I prayed. I've shared this story before. I'd just come back from being out in California where I'd seen God doing amazing things through the, what was called the Jesus People Movement. Early 1970s, God's Spirit was moving across the land. People were getting saved. Absolutely amazing things happening. And I came back, and I went over to my neighbor's house, and I'm telling him what a great time I had in California. I saw God move, and I learned how to body surf. It was really cool. It was great. But I'm glad to be back home. And there was this 10-year-old kid named Bruce that I'd never seen before, and he was hanging out in the room while I'm trying to talk to my buds. And I thought, what is he doing here? Does he not understand that we are not his peers? Does he not understand that we are in our late teens? Okay, he's only 10. Why, Why should we have to put up with him breathing the same air, okay? He's a kid. We're teens. Stupid. I was so stupid. 
Here I've seen God at work, and I was a Christian. And when I wondered why that kid was there, the Holy Spirit said, share the gospel with him. And I thought, I don't want to talk to him. He shouldn't be in here. And the Holy Spirit said, you need to talk to him. I disobeyed God. I flat out disobeyed God. I ignored the prompting of the Holy Spirit. I continued my conversation with my friends. I ignored Bruce. And I went home feeling good about myself. That night, when I knelt to pray, the Holy Spirit convicted me. And instead of repenting, I offered God a deal. Again, talk about arrogant, stupid, immature. I mean, any number of adjectives would describe various facets of my depravity. Just horrible. I'm praying about various things, and I said, "And Lord, if I was supposed to uh, share with that boy today, please forgive me. If I knew I was supposed to share with him, and I didn't do it, and I, instead of saying, God, I'm so sorry I didn't do that. That was wrong of me. Please forgive me. Instead, I, if I was supposed to share with that boy, please forgive me. And then to make matters worse, here comes the deal. If you still want me to talk to him, I mean, I, I'm embarrassed to tell you, but you need to know. I said, if you still want me to talk to him, then he's got to already be there when I go down to the Barkers tomorrow. The Barkers were my neighbor where I'd been that day. They were the hangout for the whole neighborhood because they had eight kids. That meant there was always somebody in the Barker family who was your age. Okay? So I said, when I go down to the Barkers tomorrow, he's got to already be there. I don't know why I said that, except that I was trying to make things difficult for God. Because, you know, if you make it tough enough for God, he just can't handle it. So I said, uh, he's got to already be there. And I'm not going to start a conversation with him. He's going to have to speak to me first. And I'm not going to turn the conversation towards spiritual things. He'll have to do that. So I got up the next morning pretty early, and I went down to the Barkers, and they weren't even up yet. But Bruce was sitting on their back step, and as I walked into view, he said, Hey, Jim, how are you? That's two of the conditions I had placed on God. He's there first. He started the conversation. So I said, Fine, how are you? And we talked. And after a while, as we're sitting there chatting, one of the Barker kids came out, hopped on a mini bike, they had more than one, and started riding up and down the driveway. And Bruce looked up at me, we're sitting on a little stone wall right across from the back door waiting for my friends to come out. And he said, have you ever had a mini bike? 
And I said, yes, yes, I have. In fact, I've got a picture. (laughs) Now, I didn't have the mini bike anymore. I'd grown beyond that. I was now in my late teens, (laughs) very mature, you know. That's why I didn't like hanging out with a 10-year-old and having to make conversation. But I, I was still so immature that I carried a picture of myself on my mini, back, mini bike with my aviator sunglasses and, and my World War I surplus military boots. Looking, styling. He looked at it, and I guess he wasn't overwhelmed because he changed the subject. He said, I'm sorry to change the subject. He really said that, a 10-year-old. I'm sorry to change the subject, but how can I be born again? You could have pushed me over with a feather. I was shocked. And I was convicted. And I asked the Lord, I said, I'll answer that in a moment. And I prayed. I said, God, please forgive me. And I almost started crying because I thought how utterly wicked and stupid I am in my flesh. And how amazing that God didn't kill me when I was on my knees praying that stupid prayer. And how amazing that God would give me the privilege of sharing the gospel with Bruce, even though I had acted like such an idiot. And so I asked him to forgive me, and I asked him to help me as I shared the gospel with Bruce. And you know what? Bruce got saved. Because God saved him. Because God had decided to save him. Before he made the world, God had already chosen that little boy And he had already decided that he was going to draw that boy to himself. And he was willing to use Balaam's donkey to speak the word. So there I was, the talking donkey, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with a little boy. I said, why did you ask that question? He said, I don't know. I don't even know what born again means. Why did he ask that question? Because God put it in his mouth. And I couldn't run any farther. Bruce got saved. His parents weren't saved. His father was a dentist in Raleigh, North Carolina. His father didn't believe in God, hated the church, didn't want anything to do with religion. But they were looking for a vacation in the mountains, and they had rented the little cabin right next door to the Barker's house. And so if your family's vacationing in the mountains, and there are a bunch of kids living in the big house next door, naturally, 
you gravitate toward there and you hang out there. And then when this guy comes up on the scene that you haven't seen so far that week, he's of interest to you. And so he hung out where I was. But you see, all that was orchestrated by God. And so after Bruce and I had prayed and talked, I gave him a Bible and I gave him a devotional book. And I told him he needed to spend a half an hour each day reading his Bible and be sure to read the devotional for the day as well. And you know what? About a month later, his mother contacted Mrs. Barker. And she said, apparently, while we were vacationing there in Montreat, our son Bruce prayed with some neighbor boy to receive Christ. And when he got home, he started begging us to take him to church. And he cried until finally my husband agreed that I could take him to church. Now we're going to church every week, and I've become a believer. We go to a Baptist church at night, and my husband says if we'll go to the Episcopal church in the morning, he'll go with us. I'm not going to pass any judgment on denomination. Yes, I will. My sister explained it to me back when she was going to the Episcopal Church. She said, the Salvation Army lifts people out of the gutter. And the Baptists save them. The Presbyterians educate them. The Episcopalians sophisticate them. And then the Salvation Army lifts them out of the gutter. That's the cycle of denominational life, okay, just so you know. But here's the thing. God had chosen to save that little boy. God had chosen to save his mother. And God was willing to use somebody like me, totally undeserving, to share the gospel with that little boy. I hope that the dentist got saved also. I don't know. I didn't hear. But I do know this. I'm going to see Bruce and his mom when I get to the father's house. I may get there first, I would suggest. But I'll see them eventually at home. And we're going to have fellowship forever. And I'm going to tell Bruce, I told that story so many times. And he's going to say, <laughs> that was a pretty goofy picture of you on the minibike. Folks, let me tell you something. If God wanted to destroy us, we'd be destroyed. We would be destroyed. In Isaiah chapter 37, God spoke about the fall of Sennacherib a mighty ruler who terrified all his neighbors. And God said, in verse 
35, when Sennacherib was threatening, the king of Assyria was threatening to destroy God's people. This is, this is verse 33 I'll go back to. Therefore, this is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter this city or shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, he will return. He will not enter this city, declares the Lord. I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. Then the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. And one day, while he was worshiping in the temple of his god Nishrach, his sons, Adramelech and Sherezer, cut him down with the sword and they escaped to the land of Ararat. And Esherhaddon, his son, succeeded him as king. Why would you read that? Because if God wants to destroy some people, they're done. One angel killed 185,000 soldiers in one night. In one night. Now you do the math and figure out how many soldiers died per minute during that night. Let's assume they had an eight-hour night. 185,000. 60 minutes per hour. Wow. That's fast. That's one angel. That's one angel. God is not out to get you. God is offering you eternal life and he is telling you repent repent don't ignore the warnings don't ignore the warnings the warnings are there to protect you if you say well it's my life i can do what i want you're going to be destroyed and you're going to hurt other people along the way is that really what you want I feel like God's mean. If God was mean, you wouldn't be here. My parents would have found a pile of ash at the foot of the bed where I was kneeling to pray. If God was out to get you, you'd be God. But God is offering forgiveness. Life. While you have the opportunity, repent and believe the good news. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your amazing grace. All of us have sinned and sinned badly. And even those of us whom you have saved still have a GPS that points the wrong way. And we need to go by what you say in your word. Help us to believe what you say, to turn from sin and trust you and obey. And we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.